Father and our God, we just once again come into thy holy presence and Lord, we thank thee for this day. Lord, we thank thee for everything that has taken place already this morning, for the, the hymns that we've sang and even for our sister Helen as well, Lord, reminding us that God is still on the throne and he still remembers his own. And we pray, Lord, as we come to this message of Haggai, that you'll even just encourage us through it. And you'll remind us, Lord, of that wonderful truth that no matter how bleak and how difficult things appear in the world at this time, that God is still reigning and still ruling over all things. And he will, Lord, one day come and he will even put all enemies under his footstool. Lord, we thank thee even today for the opportunity to preach thy word. We pray you'll give help, Lord, to myself to deliver it with even the passion and the zeal and the fervor, Lord, that can only come from the Spirit. Therefore, I ask, Lord, you'll fill me with the Spirit this morning, that I will know great help from on high, Lord, that you'll take me up and use me, Lord, and for the congregation as well, that they'll be even challenged in their own hearts and souls, that you'll prepare even their hearts right now. For it's in Jesus' name we ask those things. Amen. Don't worry, because the future is bright for God's people. Although such a statement is no doubt true this morning, It is at the same time something that can be very difficult for God's people to wrap their heads around. Why? Because for many people, their current circumstances are anything but bright. You go to somebody this morning who's just lost everything, and you say to them, well, don't worry about it because the future is bright. You go to somebody in the middle of some deep grief or the midst of the greatest trial in their life, and you say to them those same words, don't worry because the future is bright for you. Even the most faithful of God's people will struggle to see it at that point in time. See, in reality, it would be foolish for you or I to make such a statement, because very often it is only after you've gone through that trial that you come to realize that the future is indeed bright for them. And why is the future bright for God's people? It's bright for the following reason— Because despite everything that's going on in the world, the hope of God's people, it's not found in this world, but in the world to come. And it's exactly the same here in this book of Haggai, because it would have been very foolish for Haggai to come at the beginning of this book and to tell the people of Israel that the future was bright. I say that because of the past 70 years that people had lived in captivity in the land of Babylon— For the most part, they lost their livelihood, they lost their possessions, their family, and even their place of worship was destroyed. But as they now returned to Jerusalem, there was an eagerness and there was a hope that they hadn't had for a very long time. But that hope, that eagerness, it was very short-lived because with the end of the captivity, it didn't yield the prosperity and the blessing that they were expecting. Instead, the people, they faced much opposition from the Samaritans who were enemies of the Jews The land they returned to was desolate. It was in ruins. Many years of hard work lay before the people at this time. And you could say in many ways it truly overwhelmed them. You read the book of Ezra, and that is the historical account really of the events that took place in Haggai's day. And you will see that things got off to a good start because the foundation of the temple, it was laid But then came the external opposition. Again, it was the Samaritans, and they came, and they did everything they could to oppose the work, and it became so intense that the work would cease for 14 years. That external opposition, it led to internal opposition for the people, because their enthusiasm for the work of God was now replaced with an apathy and a carelessness. 
And because of this, God has to send these two people. He sends Haggai and he sends Zechariah. And they were tasked with delivering God's message to the people. And in Haggai's case, it was just four short messages that took place over a period of four months. Haggai chapter 1, really that's the first message out of the four. And that is really a call for the people to get their priorities right. And having challenged the people about that, then we read in Haggai chapter 2 and the opening nine verses, there's great encouragement for God's people amongst great discouragement in the world. Then Haggai delivers his third and fourth messages. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and then verses 20 to 23. And if you were, as re- were reading along with me, you will notice that both those messages, they were written and given on the same day. Verses 10 and 20 tell us that the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month. And the third message is really a call for personal holiness. But this final message is one of assurance regarding the certain future for God's people. And it's two different messages given on the same day, but they're connected. Because look at the promise that's given here at the end of verse 19. He says, from this day I will bless you. Doesn't mean he hadn't blessed them before. You'll read through the book of Haggai and you find sufficient evidence that he did bless the people there. But this fourth message here in verses 20 through 23, it's really an expansion upon that little promise in verse 19. From this day I will bless you. Verses 20 to 23, they're given to God's people, and particularly to this man, Zerubbabel, who we'll learn more about in due course. He tells them exactly what he's going to do here, and he assures them that absolutely nothing could hinder the blessing of God upon his people. And you know, it's exactly the same for us today. Because yes, these messages here, they are dated, but they're certainly not outdated. 2023 is the year, and the Lord has still promised to bless his church in this year. And that should give us the greatest encouragement this morning to continue on in God's work, despite how things appear all around us, because the future is bright for God's people. And we can trust in God today for the simple reason that his promises will never fail, and that's going to be our subject this morning. It's God's unfailing promises to his people And I simply want to consider with you this final message, verses 20 through 23. And there are two things that I want you to see with respect to his unfailing promise. First thing it is, what I'm entitling, the demonstration of his sovereign power. The demonstration of his sovereign power. Because look and read with me verses 21 and 22. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. And in these two verses, there are three things that I want you to see with respect to God's sovereign power. We see firstly that God's sovereign power is unlimited. It's unlimited because verse 21, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And God makes this statement in Haggai's day to remind the people that his sovereignty, his control over everything, it extends to heaven and to earth. 
that in being the one who has created all things, who rules over all things, that nothing can happen outside of his sovereign will. It's interesting to note here that this isn't the first time that Haggai has used such words, that the Lord's made such a promise Because you look up there in an earlier portion of Haggai, verses 6 and 7, and we find almost identical words. Verse 6 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And when the Lord uses the word shake here in verse 21 and in verse 6, He's in effect saying this, I am going to cause those things to tremble. I'm going to make them to quake. You think of an earthquake. And he says it's going to be a continual thing because the verb that is used to shake here, it's written in such a way as to indicate that the shaking will be uninterrupted and will be unhindered. But I want you to notice something else here because look at who the Lord's addressing the message to. Verse 20, and again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai the prophet in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So it's addressed to Zerubbabel, the governor of the land, the civil leader, if you like, the one who made the law. Interesting to note, as you read through this short prophecy, that in these four messages, this is the only time that Zerubbabel is addressed alone. In the other messages, there's some, always somebody else. It could be Joshua, the high priest. It was one of the priests. It was the people. And in the absence of the king here, the responsibility of the civil affairs of the land would have fallen upon this man Zerubbabel. In verse 23, we see him referred to there as God's servant. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But the Lord writes to Zerubbabel here in order to encourage him despite how things were all around him. He's reminding him here of his sovereignty. Zerubbabel, I'm going to do all things. I'm going to shake all things. You don't need to worry about it. Whilst we don't hold the same position that Zerubbabel did with regard to his office. We too, this morning, being servants of God, we can be encouraged by what Haggai says, despite how bleak and how hopeless things might appear today. Why? God knows the end from the beginning. Nothing too deep there. It's something we all know. He knows the end from the beginning. He's working out all things for his good. And because of the promise here, this promise of shaking, it is true for us also. And one day God will shake the wicked people out of this earth forever. You turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Job. Job chapter 38, please, and read with me verses 12 and 13. Job chapter 38 and verses 12 and 13. Job speaking about God's power over his creation in these verses, and read what it says in verse 12. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring, which is the dawn, to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it, out of the earth? And John Gill, commenting on verse 13, he gives two possible explanations for what verse 13 means. 
He says another is speaking about wicked men who, having spent all night in darkness and wickedness, they seek refuge from the light that is coming. So it means that, or it also can mean that there are those who have been living a life of wickedness, and God now comes in his justice to execute that justice. But whatever view you take, both reveal to us the same overarching principle that wicked men will continually shun the light of the gospel and they will not prosper and one day they will be condemned by it. So John says in John chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God's sovereign power is unlimited. But I want you to see also that God's sovereign power is unchangeable. And I say that because four times in verses 21 and 22, we have the little phrase used, I will, with respect to what he's going to do in the future, of course. Yes, things might have seemed bleak for the people in Haggai's day, but yet these two words, I will, they would have brought the utmost of comfort Why? Because of the certainty in the one who makes the words, the one who's saying these things, it's the Lord. It wasn't a case of the Lord saying, well, you know what, I might do that. Or, you know, I might, and I'm planning to do that, or I'm thinking about doing it, but no, I will certainly do all that I've said I will do. And you compare then what God says here to the attitude that we can display at times, how different it can be. So often we appear uncertain, and so often we doubt, and so often we question the plans of God. And yet, what does God say? He says, I will. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10, let me read that verse to you. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. In other words, it's impossible for God's purposes to ever be frustrated by wicked people because he's unchangeable. He says in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35 that none can stay his hand. And say unto him, what doest thou? None can hinder God from doing what he wants to do. You look back at Haggai chapter 2 and verse 22. What is it that the Lord has promised to do here? He's promised to overthrow. And he's promised to destroy all things. And it's very strong language that he uses. To overthrow something as the word is used. It means to turn about every way. It's to turn something upside down. Use the word destroy here, it means to devastate, it means to exterminate or to totally annihilate all things. And who does Haggai include in this? He says the Lord was going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, He's going to destroy the strength of the kingdom of the heathens, He was going to overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses. You take all of that, and what He's saying is, I'm going to bring down those in authority. And I'm going to destroy their armies also. In fact, such will the panic and the confusion be that God's enemies will end up fighting each other. You see, at the end of verse 22, every one by the sword of his brother. And Haggai is speaking to Zerubbabel about a future day. 
when the Lord is going to make all his enemies his footstool, and yet at the same time, he could certainly testify to the truth in his own day. He lived through captivity, I've already said that. He experienced firsthand how the Persian army, under the leadership of King Cyrus, he came and he overthrew the Babylonian army. Later on in biblical history, we read of how that Persian army would be overthrown by the Greek empire. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great would set up a great empire. And whenever Alexander died, what they did was they separated up the kingdom. It weakened his empire. And along came the Roman Empire in all of its might. And they overthrew the Greek empire. If history is anything to teach us, is that God can just as easily raise up one empire as tear down another. And yet Daniel again In his prophecy, he speaks of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. And the days of these things shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And what an encouragement that should be to the church of God today. Because no matter how wicked those in authority are, and no matter the various conflicts that we're seeing all around the world at this moment, everything, everything is under God's sovereign control. And God can bring it all down in an instant. God is and will continue to build his church. And the gates of hell shall certainly not prevail against it. God's sovereign power here, it is unlimited, it's unchangeable, but I want you to see something else, it is unavoidable. It's unavoidable, and what I mean here very simply is this, it doesn't matter who you are today, what job you have, how prestigious you might be, because the Word of God says that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive in the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And when Paul uses the word all, it can't be any simpler. He means everybody. Both the Christian and the unbeliever today will stand before the Lord one day. And yes, as the believer, you will stand before the Lord, and there will be no condemnation for you because God has forgiven your sin. It's equally true to say that at that judgment day, your actions will have consequences. Because every believer will be rewarded according to the life they lived. And yet for the unbeliever today who stands before the Lord in their sin, you'll not even be allowed to speak. Not be allowed to plead your case because the Lord will declare you guilty. And you will be condemned to hell for all eternity because of your sin. Here we see the demonstration of his sovereign power. That's my first point. But then the second and final thing I want you to see is this. It's the description of his servant promised. Look now what Haggai says in verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And again, like my first point, there are three things revealed to us in verse 23. We see firstly something of the identity of God's servant. Verse 23, 
In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. He's called Zerubbabel. He's called a servant. He's the son of Shealtiel. And to be a servant here, as the word is used, it means to be a slave. It means to be a bondman. The same title was given to many others in Scripture, I think, this morning of Abraham. In Psalm 105, in verse 42, we read the words, For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. Also said of Moses, Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, People feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And it was also said of King David in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And therefore for Zerubbabel here to be given the same title as such men of God, it surely highlights his importance to us. And yet, what do we actually know about who this man Zerubbabel was? Well, he's called the son of Shealtiel. First Chronicles chapter 3 and 17, he's called Salathiel. It's the same person. But he was the son of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was one of the last kings of Judah. And therefore, Zerubbabel was his grandson. And Zerubbabel was never a king himself, but he was of the royal family. And that's all very important when you consider Christ and you consider the line of Judah. Because Zerubbabel is the ancestor of Jesus Christ that linked him to David. And we read about that in the genealogies, Matthew chapter 1 verse 12. And if I could say this to you this morning, never read over those genealogies. I know it's very easy to do. So many names, you can't pronounce the names half the time. But there's so much history and there's so much in those little genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias, which is Jehoiakim, he begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And therefore, in calling Zerubbabel my servant here in Haggai, he's pointing to Christ, in whom Zerubbabel was a type. And I say that because Christ is also given the title of my servant. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. You can turn there with me if you're following along because we'll be going back to it again. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He's called my servant. It's speaking about Christ. And we see Christ's work of servitude over in the New Testament as well. You think of the familiar words in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, it's the word servant, and to give his life a ransom for many. And again, there's reason to rejoice today in this. Because Christ has accomplished what he set out to do as, his, as our servant, going to the cross, he suffered and died. And in doing that, he's conquered death. He's conquered and defeated the devil so that you and I might have eternal life. 
And yes, we can never serve in the way that Christ has done on this earth. Nonetheless, we've all been called to live a life of service. And therefore the question is today, are you fulfilling that duty? Are you doing everything you can for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and his cause? See, the Lord who gave all for us, he demands we give nothing less than our best for him. So regarding God's promised servant, we have considered his identity. It's Zerubbabel in whom Christ was prefigured. But then what about his authority? Again, look at verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet. And the reference here to the signet, it's speaking about one who would wear a signet ring, one who would have a royal seal. And to the Oriental people here, the signet was something of great value. It was something of great importance. The only time the owner of such a signet would take it off or part with it is if they were going to delegate authority to another. I see an example of that in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3 and verse 10, you have King Ahasuerus and he gives the signet to Haman. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10, And the king took off his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamathadar, the Agathite, the Jew's enemy. And the importance of such a thing should not be overlooked today. Shouldn't be missed, shouldn't be downplayed, because if the royal seal were to fall into the wrong hands, the consequences could be devastating. The one who wore the signet possessed the authority of the king. They had the power, they had the authority to then issue decrees and edicts and whatever they liked to do as they pleased. And they had the authority because it was in their name. They had the seal. But again, it's very interesting, I believe, that the Lord had promised to make Zerubbabel as a signet. Because remember his father, Jehoiakim. Well, Jehoiakim wore the signet at the time as well, but the Lord removed it from him because of his wicked rule. And in the Old Testament, God, he made a covenant with David. And you read about that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he promised to David he was going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And therefore, by taking away the signet from Jehoiakim, who was of the line of Judah, humanly speaking, was to put that promise in doubt. But by returning the signet to Zerubbabel, we are reminded that God's promises, they are unbreakable and they are unfailing. And again, we look at that in Isaiah 42 in verse 1. Because the signet here is not fulfilled in Zerubbabel, but it's filled in Christ. And in the authority that will be given to him by his father. You read that verse again. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. There's his authority. And again, we see the reality of that played out. You think of Christ's baptism. Divinely anointed there at his baptism as the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. We see it further revealed in Christ's own words to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. In verse 18 of chapter 28, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And when Christ made that statement, he's not saying that he was powerless prior to this point, never think that. 
He's saying, no, that in faithful obedience to the will of his Father as our mediator, that Christ entered now a new state of exaltation upon his resurrection. That being the God-man, he now received all authority and all power over heavenly beings and earthly creatures in order to apply salvation to his elect. My elect. That's what it says in Isaiah, speaking about Christ. But you know, the Bible attributes this idea of a seal to God's people today also. Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13 reveal that to us. It says there that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom he also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Is he just as a signet will leave an impression upon the wax that it was sealing, so by Christ is the lost image of God restored in the believer. And nothing or nobody can ever change your standing in Christ. Very quickly, there's one final thing we see with this promised servant, and that is his appointing. Haggai says in verse 23, For I have chosen thee. I have selected thee. I have elected thee. And again, you see it in Isaiah 42 and 1. He's mine elect. And like the previous two thoughts, this promise does not end with Zerubbabel, but no, goes to Christ. For the simple reason that neither Zerubbabel nor any of his children would ever sit on the throne. Because of the wickedness of his grandfather Jehoiakim, God had stripped him of that honor. He had excluded any of his descendants from inheriting that throne. Jeremiah 22 and verse 30 says that. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And yes, Zerubbabel can never sit upon the throne. But the fact that he was chosen by the Lord and he was given the signet, it guaranteed once more this covenant promise was true regarding David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he guarantee this? Well, again, we go back to the genealogies. Because the kingship was, was transferred to another line of David. And this really thrilled my heart whenever I looked at this this week. See, Jehoiakim was the last of the house of David through the line of Solomon. And Solomon was David's son. And you read about Solomon in Matthew chapter 1, verse 7. But Salathiel, who we read about in verse 12 of that same chapter, he was the father of Zerubbabel. And Salathiel, he appears in both the genealogies, in Matthew and in Luke. And Salathiel was a descendant of Nathan, who was the other son of David. And so Salathiel here, he is the link between the two. The kingship was transferred from the line of Solomon through Judah to the line of Nathan through Judah. And that ends with Christ. The amazement of the genealogies, that little detail, and so easy to miss it. And I can't think of a better way for Haggai to end his series of messages than with a certain promise that Christ was coming. Yes, it was going to be over 500 years in the future, but Christ was coming. 
And as I said at the beginning, the future was bright for God's people. What a perfect way to end our message here this morning in Martyrs. 2,000 years or more have passed since Christ came to this earth. And whilst the world, by all appearances, is getting more wicked and depraved by the day, yet God's promises remain unfailing toward his people. And the day is approaching when Christ will come and all his enemies will be made his footstool, they will be shaken, and we will live in this world no more because it's going to be burned up. The question I want to leave with you today is this. Are you ready for that day? Do you know the Lord today? And are you saved? Because the Bible says in no uncertain terms it is time to seek the Lord. And what better time to seek the Lord than right now at this very moment in time? My prayer and my desire as always is that you would come to Christ if you're not saved in repentance over your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. For the believer today, may these verses and what I've said today from God's Word may thrill your heart. Because God's promises there are unfailing to his people. And may he write that word upon your heart. And in those times of doubting, and in those times and struggles, and you look around and you wonder, be reminded that God is still on the throne. And God will build his church.